Moncrief on News Talk. Uh, time for uh, news from other parts of the globe. We are joined as ever by Jonathan DeBurka Butler. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you doing? Uh, now, uh, first story is in the Western Sahara and uh, the US is uh, trying to set up a consulate there. Yeah, so you might remember that uh, towards the end of last year, uh, the United States decided to recognize Morocco's claim to sovereignty over Western Sahara. Okay, so Western Sahara is, a, is an area, a region to the south of Morocco, which has been disputed since the early 1970s. Basically, uh, it's disputed between uh, the, the government of Morocco, obviously, and the, the Sahrawi people um, who uh, are represented really by the Polisario Front, a militant group looking for independence. Okay, now um, back in December, as I said, the United States decided to recognise Morocco's claim to sovereignty over that. Right now, you you might ask yourself, well, why did they do that all of a sudden? Well, you mm. might also remember that a number of Arabic countries in the region. Uh, decided to start recognizing Israel and, uh, you know, reconnecting with them diplomatically or connecting with them indeed for the first time diplomatically. So there was the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, Saudi Arabia started talks with them as well. And Morocco was another country that basically decided to open diplomatic ties with Israel. And in return, the United States said they would recognize uh, Morocco's claim to Western Sahara. So as you can imagine, I mean, this is a dispute that has raged for, what, the guts of 50 years now at this stage. The United Nations basically uh, doesn't recognize uh, um, Morocco's claim and says that the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic is what they call a non-self-governing territory. The EU are the same. The International Court of Justice is the same. But I think the fact that, you know, uh, the United States has recognized it is a big boost uh, for Morocco. And... Last Sunday, um, the U.S. ambassador to uh, Morocco, who's based in Rabat, he went into the region. He's the first U.S. diplomat to do so and said that he was going to establish a consulate uh, consulate in the area. Right. OK. Is that set to make the problem worse? Well, it is. Um, I think, really, you might remember that at the end of November, we reported, in fact, that the Polisario um, Front... Uh, this military representat- representative uh, of, of the Sahrawi people um, had said that they were going to break a ceasefire that had been in place since 1991. Now, they said that this was because of aggression uh, on its borders that had been started by Morocco. Morocco said it had been started by Polisario Front and vice versa. But I think what they actually were doing was they were seeing this recognition coming down the tracks and they were taking you know, a, a sort of preemptive step um, to kind of say, well, we're not going to tolerate this. So uh, to be honest with you, it probably will make the situation a little bit worse, although uh, I imagine the setting up of this consulate in Western Sahara will be is some way of really sort of intimidating um, uh, the Sahrawi Arab uh, Democratic Republic into sort of giving way on this particular matter. But it seems unlikely that they'll do it anytime soon. Mm. Uh, one wonders what the other countries that have uh, recently established diplomatic ties with Israel, the UAE, Bahrain yeah. and Sudan, what did they get? Yeah, they got quite, they did quite well, actually. I mean, so so very briefly, I think Bahrain is being used as a barometer, basically, by which um, ties with Saudi Arabia can be gauged into the future, right? Uh, Sudan, for its part, it's been removed. Uh, economic sanctions have been removed 
um, from it. So now it's allowed to trade more freely. So and, and in other scenarios, there's arms deals that are being done as well. Um, so everybody's doing quite well out of it. Um, uh, and, and there will be more who will uh, join the party in all probability in the near future. Right. Senegal, we're going to go to next, where uh, a big outbreak of bird flu. Yeah, this is a, a very brief story, to be honest with you, Sean. I suppose um, it reflects uh, uh, the, the not desire necessarily, but the awareness of, uh, that we now have of, of these various different viruses that are out and about in the place. Um, Senegal has reported an outbreak of uh, H5N1 bird flu on a poultry farm. All right. So this happened in to the east of Dakar in a region called Thais. Um, the outbreak originally killed about 58 thousand birds out of a hundred out of a flock of a hundred thousand and the remaining 42,000 were immediately culled now that story came out about four or five days ago and I've been keeping an eye on it to, to see has there been any developments in it has there been any other outbreaks in Senegal thus far there have been none uh, but obviously the concern although it is a, it is a slight concern because I don't want to be alarmist mm. is that it, you know it would, it would jump from birds to people but but even then its transmissibility isn't particularly high uh, but it's just one of these things to keep an eye on there is also an outbreak uh, I, I recently saw in India which uh, which appears to be much larger uh, and they're they're slightly concerned about um, but uh, story we can probably do without to be honest with you <laughs> yeah. in many ways but when it, keep an I, eye on <laughs> yeah there, as I understand when it does make the jump uh, uh, the, the jump to humans it's really really a severe disease it, yeah I think the mortality is 60% or thereabouts so um, yeah it's it's uh, it's it's very severe indeed Right, South Korea we're going to go to next and I suppose a controversy that's raged since uh, World War II uh, mm. something that to a certain extent Japan even denied happened for a long time. This is yeah. about comfort women, uh, and there's been a court ruling in South Korea. Yeah, so this is these are the comfort women. These got a long story short about two hundred thousand women, mainly from South Korea, uh, during the Japanese occupation of South Korea, were used as prostitutes. Okay, they were forced into prostitution, and and for a very long time, nobody spoke about it because of the shame. Um, but about 30, 35 years ago. Um, some people began to speak about it and brought cases and eventually there was an agreement that was made between Japan and South Korea only very recently in 2018 where Japan said it would pay the equivalent of about 8 million euros into a, a fund uh, that would look after these women and then the all-important apology came from the then Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, okay? But it, it appears that for a lot of people that isn't enough. And it should be said that while these talks between South Korea's government and Japan's government were taking place, there were cases that had been brought, uh, you know, before these talks. So this particular incident that we're, or case that we're talking about started in 2013. It involved 12 women who brought a case for compensation against the, the government of Japan. And the ruling has just come out. It came out in the last few days. And basically, this court in South Korea has decided that the Japanese government owes each of these women or their families, because I think only five of them are surviving, 75,000 euros. OK, so the, the, the money isn't huge. Right. But the, the problem is uh, because it's reopening a wound that the Japanese government had really, truly believed that they had put to bed back in 2018. But this court has said no. Uh, these women are entitled to pursue the Japanese government as individuals for compensation, which I think is probably fair enough in many respects. Um, but the Japanese don't see it that way. 
Uh, and while it's, I suppose, symbolically huge uh, for these women and their supporters, mm. they can't actually force Japan to give them anything. No, they can't, uh, uh, to be honest. But, I mean, they will go through all sorts of procedures. And more than anything, diplomatically, it looks really bad uh, because, I mean, there's other stuff going on. I mean, they still haven't sorted out problems around um, labor camps, you know, prison camps during the Second World War. There's disputes over islands, uh, you know, and, and various different things. So they've always had a tense relationship, uh, mainly because of, you know, imperial occupation. Um, and this is not going to do it any favors. And this is the first of a few decisions in court cases pertaining to comfort women that are uh, are going to come out over the coming weeks and months. So uh, it, it, it uh, it's bound to get a little even more tense. Right. Uh, Vietnam, we're going to go to now. And uh, once again, I suppose this is a story that comes up a lot in, in, in the sense of the dangers of using social media in certain countries. Yeah, so this is the um, 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 story of, uh, of a man uh, by the name of Nguyen Van Ha, a young fella who last year posted videos on his Facebook account, which he said, in which he said the representatives, the local representatives of the Communist Party of Vietnam had mismanaged a local land dispute, right? Political criticism. Now, you might think to yourself, in Ireland, sure, that happens all the time. Every day on Twitter, thousands of people getting, you know, taken down politically. But they're not noted for their tolerance of, of political dissent in uh, Vietnam. Um, so this poor guy, he was denounced by the chairwoman and the deputy chairwoman that he had criticized. Uh, the police went and they arrested him and they charged him for defamation. And he's now going to be sent to prison for a year for defamation of, uh, of character, which is extraordinary when you think about it. Um, it's extraordinary, but not it's not surprising. Um, yeah. According to reporters without borders, Vietnam is 175, ranked 175 out of 180 countries around the world. So it is not noted for its, uh, as I said, for its diso- uh, tolerance of, of political dissent. Yeah, that's uh, in freedom of expression that uh, um, or um, press freedom in, in terms of that league. Yes, absolutely. That, that's yeah. what reporters without borders. That's what it basically looks at every year. It publishes a world press freedom index and uh, Vietnam repeatedly come bottom of the table or very close to it. Uh, Right. India now and uh, a story about uh, a family trying to get money for a funeral. They went about it in a rather unusual way. It it was. This is uh, is the, yeah, a man by the name of Mahesh Yadav. Uh, He's a farm laborer in the eastern state of Bihar and he had been ill for some time. Um, His neighbours found him dead one morning. And uh, they looked around his house and they couldn't find any valuables which they could use uh, to cremate him with or to pay for the cremation. Uh, They did, however, find a bank deposit book uh, with apparently $1,600 in it. Now, for a man who had no land and was apparently, according to his neighbors anyway, on the, you know, outwardly uh, rather poor, uh, $1,600 is is, is quite significant. So they took his bank deposit uh, book to the bank uh, along with his body. uh, And they basically said, look, this guy is clearly dead, but we can't pay for his cremation. And if we don't get money for it, we're not going to go ahead with it, which will obviously cause a problem uh, in the neighborhood. Initially, the bank manager didn't really want to hand over any money at all. But when he saw that the mob was getting a little bit uh, irked uh, by his response, uh, he decided to give them $135 uh, to pay for the cremation. I, I don't know why he didn't hand over all the cash and just say, here, <laughs> leave me alone. Uh, but it paid for the cremation and it went ahead. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the money or who's entitled to it. As far as I know, he didn't have any family. 
Um, so it remains to be seen, uh, will they come back for more? Yeah, well, presumably they have less of a reason uh, to go back for more and they have no body uh, to bring with them this time either. Uh, <laughs> prove it, not anymore anyway. <laughs> uh, finally, Germany we're going to go to now and uh, this is about the names of storms. Yeah, so a, a good few months ago we reported uh, on Germany changing its phonetic alphabet uh, to reflect uh, diversity within mm. the country. Uh, they're doing the same with storms now, um, only this isn't coming from any authority. This has been started by a group of journalists, all right, who are calling themselves the new German media makers. And basically they represent diversity within German media. Okay, so they basically point out that 26% of people in Germany have migrant roots, but they're not represented in various different facets of, of German life. And, for example, storm names is, is one of them. So that's something that we in Ireland have started doing recently, Storm Kira, Storm John, whatever it might be. Uh, but they've been doing it for years in Germany, only it's not actually done by whatever the equivalent of Met Aaron in Germany is, all right? Mm. It's not an official thing. You can actually buy storm names in Germany, right? <laughs> and not only can you buy low-pressure systems, but you can also buy high-pressure systems, right? Uh, you pay 360 euros for high pressure systems and low co uh, lows cost 240 euros and then you can name them after whoever you want so this group basically decided they'd buy some of these names and the first storm that's going to come in germany will be named storm ahmed which is obviously of turkish origin uh, they bought up other ones uh, that relate to basically arabic names kurdish names and greek names i'm looking forward to storm Demetrios myself. It sounds like it could be pretty wild. Uh, but that's what they're doing. And, and the point that they're making basically is that Germany needs to get its head around its diverse population. And this is one way of doing it, I suppose. Right. Interesting idea, I thought. An uh, interesting idea, though. These storms don't respect boundaries. So the storm may well have had another uh, name in another part of the world. And then it suddenly enters German airspace and it has to undergo a name change, maybe even a gender change. Uh, uh, these gender yeah, fluid storms. Absolutely. Uh, political correctness yeah. gone wild in, in our meteorological <laughs> systems. Uh, <laughs> any uh, major events to look forward to over the next week, Jonathan? To be honest with you, the, what I found was a lot of European Union meetings, which aren't exactly <laughs> stimulating for lots of people. I think the biggest story this week uh, is the elections on Thursday in Uganda. Um, there was a great piece last weekend by Owen Butler, no relation, in the Irish Times, where he did an interview with Bobby Wine, uh, who is the main opposition candidate. And it's going to be a really interesting election. Uh, Museveni's been around for a very long time. He could be threatened by this, but it, it's, it's, it's going to be uh, a very interesting couple of days. Uh, so watch out for the weekend in Uganda. Okay, dokie. Jonathan, thanks a million for uh, talking with us today. Jonathan DeBurka Butler, there you are, Excellent. listening to the Moncrief Show. Moncrief on News Talk.